everybody. Welcome back to another week of Women to Watch here on WWDB AM 860. My name is Sue Rocco, and I'm thrilled to be here every week sharing stories with some wonderful women in the Philadelphia area and across the country as well. Um, Today in the studio, I am really excited to have with me uh, a woman who is going to share a very, very inspirational story with us today. So um, I'd like to introduce to you Elizabeth Barker. Uh, We call her Liz. And Liz is the author of Changed by Chance, Champion by Choice. And uh, Liz is also a financial advisor, um, which is what she does by day as well. So welcome to the studio, Liz. Thank you, Susan. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, Liz and I met actually um, through Mount St. Joe Academy, which I love to point out because that's near and dear to my heart. Uh, My daughter graduated there and uh, Liz did as well. Um, I'd like to go back and and start and talk a little bit about your, your years growing up in South Philadelphia, which is where you were born and raised. Yes, it um, like many ethnic neighborhoods, it was quite a unique experience. And, um, you know, the old fashioned family model, the mom stayed home, dads worked, we had one car, everyone knew each other on the street. And you, um, it was a wonderful experience, actually, good life lessons, because your friends were not only those Um, children that were similar age or similar grade, but um, it could run the gamut from, you know, small children to those older than you. It was really a community uh, on our block, as we called it. Right. And what block was that? Um, It was the 2300 block of Watkins Street in uh, St. Edmund's Parish. Okay. Which is how we all talk about where we live in Philadelphia, the parish, right? Yes, exactly. When you'd meet other, you know, Center City or um, whether it was West, North, you know, South Philadelphia, what parish? And that kind of identified where, you know, where your community was. Right. (laughs) And you were the oldest of five children, I understand. Yes. Which is always a lot of responsibility. Yes, yes. My um, my youngest sister, Rose, who actually she and I are really the, the, the most close, I suppose, because we were um, about 10 years apart. So um, I was really the built-in mother's helper. Right. And, <laughs> and your mom was um, a homemaker? Is that yes. right? And how about dad? What did he do? Uh, my dad was a uh, was in the Air Force, uh, retired um, captain in the Air Force and a lifelong Philadelphia school teacher. Oh, great. Great. Yeah. Okay. So uh, how old were you when you moved, uh, when the family moved to Lafayette Hill? I was 12. I was entering uh, junior high. Okay. That must have been a little bit difficult. You were leaving one school at the age of 12 to, to go to another, I'm assuming before Mount. Um, I don't think the pressures are as intense today um, as they were back then. Um, but um, no, it was a transition I looked forward to. And actually, um, my cousin my cousin, who is about my age, um, was living in Lafayette Hill, which is one of the reasons uh, why my family relocated there. My mom wanted to be uh, close to her sister. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it wasn't that difficult. But uh, maybe in today's world, it might be a little more difficult. Right. Well, you just kind of did what mom and dad told you to do, right? <laughs> <laughs> they weren't asking the children, what would you like to do? Yes. Yes. Yeah. It was different. So... Um, Talk a little bit about those years at Mount St. Joe uh, and what it was like to be in an all-girls Catholic academy. 
I have to admit, Susan, I resisted it. You did? Uh-oh. <laughs> I did. Um, I just, uh, we had a very fine, uh, we do still. I live in Lafayette Hill um, presently where my parents uh, are still residing. And uh, we have a fine school district. And um, um, PW, Plymouth White Marsh, um, was something that, uh, you know, offered. It was a beautiful modern building and just um, had lots of clubs and things like that. And um, I guess I just didn't want, didn't like the idea of an all-female school mm-hmm. but uh, initially. Uh, but my parents insisted, and it didn't take long for me to really feel comfortable there and, and really embrace that idea that I could, I didn't have to worry about makeup and clothing and um, not that I let myself go. No one did, of course. Um, but... You, you didn't have to, to to worry about that. And I see the dynamics t- today, actually. Um, uh, I do a lot of networking, as you know. You and mm-hmm. I belong to a lot of the same networking groups uh, where it's all women. Um, and I've noticed in at other networking events or business functions when there are males and females, the dynamics change sometimes. Mm-hmm. And... Um, So it's not something just for teenagers or adolescents. Um, I see that. I see those little changes subtly, um, even in adults. So it was very comfortable. Right, right. And it honestly did allow me to focus more. I I bet. (laughs) I, I say all the time, I think there's just that, you know, one less distraction. You know, that kind of helps you stay focused on the academics when you're when you don't have the boys at that age. Yes. And somehow I managed, you know, I didn't have any issues regarding dating. And as you probably know, a lot of the schools partner for dances and plays and and clubs. Right. Um, There's plenty of opportunity to meet boys. There really are. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which, by the way, is is how you met your husband. Is that, Am I correct? Or did you meet after high school? He went to St. Joe Prep. Yes, we met actually in high school. My aunt that I alluded to, um, which was the draw for my mom and dad to move to uh, Lafayette Hill, had a son, my cousin, who was about my age. And um, we always got along well together as children. And then when we reached high school... Um, you know, we still stayed close and then we would introduce each other, uh, to our friends. He was part of the, um, St. Joe's prep crew team, um, which even today is a major force, um, in, in that sport. Um, so he had a close group, he had a close knit group of friends, uh, with the crew team and, um, We'd go to watch the races, and um, so we'd intermingle. And so he and he ended up dating some of my friends. I dated some of his, and yes, that's how I met my husband. <laughs> that's <laughs> nice. That's a common story around here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, what types of activities were you involved in at the Mount? I mean, was you know being in the financial industry was math. Economics, something you always had an interest in, or is that something that came later in life for you? Surprisingly, no. Okay. <laughs> it's an interesting life lesson. I've, I've always been rather artsy. Okay. If you were to poll some people from my class of 74, um, and we're having our 40th reunion next year. Are you? Great. They would probably remember me as, um, you know, not the best student. Um, not that I was a poor student, but not... Um, 
you know, top of the class, best student, um, not into the sciences or math. No, um, maybe more of in, you know the the literature art type. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, I was involved with some of the religious. Um, I forget what we called the club, but we would do community service. Yes. I like that. Yes. I, I've always liked that. I've always been a people person. I was involved with the art club. Um, I did one of their um, cultural um, European trips. Mm-hmm. Um, sounds exotic, but it wasn't. It was, I think, simply seven or ten days um, over in Europe, you know, to learn, you know, a bit about other culture. Uh, so that was fun. But, yeah, they might laugh when they think, oh, <laughs> she's she's a vice president and advisor in the financial world. But inherently, I've always been very good with money. And I see that in my two sons uh, or or I see a trait um, like that. I have two sons and they're, um, you know, completely different. One is very frugal, manages his money. Um, it's funny. I see myself in him. The mm-hmm. other is more like my husband in that um, kind of goes day by day. And Not worrying about the big picture. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And I try to gently kind of nudge him along right. <laughs> and uh, keep him on track and talk about goal setting and planning for the future. Right. Well, I would imagine you saw uh, or learned a little bit about that from being the oldest of five children growing up in South Philadelphia mm-hmm. and from mom or dad that that kind of instilled in you, you know, a sense of money and, and uh, saving. And is that true? Or lack of. Yeah. Or, right. <laughs> One way or another, you learned a lesson. I remember the refrain, well, you're the oldest and we have four others. So when I would ask for um, certain things that I saw some of my peers wearing. Um, um, I don't know if you remember, but Bass Weegians. Remember the Bass Weegians? I do they were not. The, they what? were the shoe to oh. wear. <laughs> There's always a shoe to In wear. junior high. <laughs> right. And um, they were very expensive. So I had the JCPenney version of oh. Bass Weegians. <laughs> it's like the generic version of Uggs today, right? I suppose. <laughs> So, yes, um, but um, no resentment there. Honestly, I I think it was wonderful growing up with, you know, with four siblings. Mm -hmm. I really do. I wouldn't trade that for the world. In fact, uh, one of my closest friends, actually two of my closest friends, one was an only child and the other had a brother, but he was significantly older. So they were on, you know, two different wavelengths. Mm -hmm. I think he was married when we were Actually, I think he was. I think he was married when we were in junior high. And um, and I often thought, gee, aren't they lonely? Gee, their household is so... And, and everyone would love to come to our house. Right. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure there was always something going on. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so no worries there. Yeah. So um, how did you come upon your decision to go to Philadelphia University? Well, again, go back to economics. <laughs> I would have, uh, at the time, I think my first choice was Drexel, and I was thinking about my artsy side Mm -hmm. of um, possibly interior or fashion design. Um, Again, you know, kind of the arts, and and took a tour there, and... um, but it, it it's very well college is no comparison to to what it was back in um 
1974 in terms of cost and ratio of cost to, you know, earned income today mm-hmm. and affordability. Uh, but um, so my parents had said, no, uh, we can't do that. <laughs> so, because there's four others coming yes, after you. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And um, I did work all through uh, college. I, I worked pretty much from the time I was able to babysit. Did that um, and then worked in retail and then worked uh, through college waitressing because that was always good money. And in summers, actually, I would work two jobs. Wow. I did um, because I wanted certain things, um, you know, over and above, uh, you know, over and above what my parents could provide. And I was willing to work hard for it. And and that's what I did. So uh, Philadelphia University at the time, it was called Philadelphia Textile. Philadelphia College of Textiles and Science. Right. And um, the admissions director, who I think is still there, um, John Pierre a wonderful man. And it was just a, a, it gave a combination of business and um, some of the artsy side. Um, So it actually was a great fit. And um, it enabled me to live at home, which is what my parents wanted for affordability. Mm -hmm. But I had a goal um, in my last year. I wanted to live on campus and have that experience. And they said, well, if you can afford it, you may do so, of course. And so I made it happen. That's why I did the two jobs, saving, um, you know, those three prior years. And that was my goal, to live on campus the last year and experience, you know, college you know, the total college experience. Right, right. And it was fun. It was really fun, and it, and it was well worth it. So um, what was your first job out of college? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Can you share? It was, um, it was retail. Okay. And that was a life lesson, too. Um, I guess I realized with my degree, I, I, I guess I was focusing more on the um, the art side and realized, well, I didn't want to go down south where some of the um, the mills were, where they actually fabricated materials, you know, to make clothing or upholstery or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't want New York, New York City, just the expense or the commute. I had a lot of friends. I don't know how they did it, but of course we were all young. They would commute daily up to New York From City. From Philadelphia. Yeah, daily. Wow. Um, so I didn't want to do that. And I thought, well, let me explore the retail field and maybe that might take me somewhere. So I, um, my first position was with a now defunct, uh, department store, but it was an eye opener. And, um, I realized, um, too sweet that (laughs) retail was not for me. I went through the first Christmas season and just said never again. It's it's a lot. I, I would say where I myself worked in retail a couple of different places, and it really does give you though a lesson in business, the big mm-hmm. picture of business. That uh, lots of things, customer yeah. service. Yeah. Yes. Um, you know, I, I was managing a staff, um, so I was a manager. Okay. Um, but I, I just it. I I quickly became disenchanted. So I started uh, shortly after graduation. That would be June. Mm -hmm. Um, Went through the summer, I guess, which was relatively tame for most retail because people are away. Christmas season, after right after Christmas season, I said, my New Year's resolution, find a new job. <laughs> <laughs> you, you seem to be very goal-oriented. <laughs> Didn't is... take long to learn that lesson. Right, right. <laughs> so what was your next step? 
Um, my next step what was then to explore my business side and um, thinking that um, and and again going back to I know that I've always been goal oriented um, could manage money um, and I thought let me deal with that so I started interviewing with banks and um, financial services companies okay and um, I was very fortunate, and I mention him in my book, um, Hank Gartner. Uh, the first company that I worked for was the Equitable. Uh, it's now Equitable AXA. And Hank was a father figure and a mentor, a wonderful man. And sadly, he passed away um, probably about 15 years ago. But Hank literally uh, took me under his wing. I... Um, learned the insurance uh, financial services business um, because of him. And um, Hank had a daughter about my age. And I think, um, you know, he saw, um, you know, or, you know, thought about, you know, his daughter going out into the world one day, hoping that she would find her place and, and maybe have a mentor. And he was just wonderful. Um, I also recognize in my book uh, his superior, uh, Bernard Encarnation. Uh, Bernie, thankfully, is still alive and well, living in Kennett Square and still working. Um, uh, another wonderful man. The two of them uh, were very much behind um, grooming me and uh, pre preparing me to grow. Um, and I was briefly in management there. Uh, I can't say enough about the two of them and that company. Uh, they were they were absolutely wonderful to me. Yeah, and isn't that ironic? So two gentlemen were mentors in your life. And mm -hmm. um, from what I understand, a lot of your focus today is with women in transition. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, we'll talk about why that is so important to you. Mm -hmm. um, so let's talk a little bit about your meeting your husband and the beginning of, you know, your life together, because that's an important piece of the puzzle. It is. Um, I don't want to say we had a fairy tale life, but, you know, we met young. We were high school sweets, sweethearts. Um, and again, it's funny. I kind of see this in, in one of my sons, too, the one that's um, frugal. He met um, a wonderful girl in high school, and they've dated through college. He recently graduated college, and they have plans, I think, to, you know, to ultimately marry. So... Um, so we had goals. Although we married, we we both decided we wanted to um, get to a certain point in our career, you know, buy a house, do a little traveling, you know, enjoy ourselves, and then have children. Mm -hmm. And I always felt... You had it all planned out, right? I did. I did. <laughs> and I thank God my health was good. Um, you know, I felt youthful. I didn't feel that I, you know, had to, you know, have my childbearing done by a certain age. Some women, you know, may have some health issues, frankly. So, um, you know, not saying whatever I did is right for everyone else, but this was my plan. Mm -hmm. So, yes, I had it all planned out. Which <laughs> we, we soon learn, right, that things can take a, take a turn. Absolutely. Yes. Mm -hmm. So um, let's talk about April of 1986. Yes. Am I correct? Mm -hmm. I know that's an important date. And for the listeners, um, talk a little bit about what happened on that day. Okay. Uh, so we were married uh, young and for eight years did what I had said, you know, and enjoyed ourselves, traveling, built our careers, um, uh, 
um, you know, bought a home and kind of settled down. And then honestly, it, I, I internally felt it. I felt the time is right. I'm ready to have a baby. And I love children. As I said, I, I loved growing up in our household of five children. And so um, I had a perfect pregnancy. And in fact, my delivery was um, textbook perfect. Um, um, it, it was just, you know, it just moved along, didn't need any medication. Um, when my husband got me to the hospital, the nurse said, where have you been? You're, I think, nine centimeters dilated. I said, yes. You know, because <laughs> and you you're hear, first. That's, yes. that's unusual. Right. Yeah. Where have you been? You're almost ready to go. And I thought, oh, gosh, because I heard all these, you know, the, all the horror stories that, that uh, women share about, you know, 12 hour labors or more. And in fact, my mother had a very difficult time uh, with me. She did. Okay. <laughs> it was. Yeah, I think it was. Uh, yeah, it was over 12 hours. So I feared that yes. because I was her first. Right. Um, so it was all easy. Um, but when Lauren was born... Um, so my daughter's name, um, was Lauren Elizabeth Barker. Um, when she was born, um, I was a little bit groggy, but, um, I just knew something was wrong. Um, she was a dusky color. Um, she was a a large baby. I, you know, I, you know, you're kind of out of it, even though I didn't have medication or wasn't drugged, you, you know, I could hear the doctor saying, wow, she's a big baby. She's got to be at least uh, nine pounds. And I remember from the childbirth class that sometimes larger babies are uh, a little dusky. Um, But I I remember thinking something's not right. And I remember verbalizing that and then feeling horrible. I I put this in my book that, you know, what kind of a new mother looks at her baby and says, something's not right. Mm. And... I'm not sure what they knew or if they knew, but I remember the nurse saying, what do you mean? And I just, I was groggy and I said, I don't know, just something's not right. And they just uh, whisked her away from me and, and then, you know, had to do the whole afterbirth thing. (laughs) Right. Yes. So what ultimately was, um, was the issue? Um, initially they, um, I guess based on their experience, and this was a local hospital um, that I know since has merged with Penn and probably become more sophisticated, but again, had a perfect pregnancy, no issues, so there's no reason for me not to deliver at this local hospital. Um, But they weren't equipped to handle whatever her issues were. Um, I think they, they initially suspected that she had a heart defect, which is why she was blue, because the blood wasn't flowing, but they didn't really know. And um, so she was immediately um, transported down to a center city uh, pediatric hospital. And how long did you have to wait before, you know, you actually saw her and held her for the first time? Well, um, so um, in the delivery room, they kind of whisked her away right away because they needed to get oxygen um, to her. Um, And then... um, you know, the parents came to the hospital bringing flowers. Everybody was optimistic. And and then the doctor came in and, and said there was something wrong. But again, I'm not sure he quite knew uh, what what all of the issues were. And uh, and then they wheeled Lauren in in a it looked like a little glass box, um, a clear. It wasn't glass. Okay, I guess it was plexiglass, mm-hmm. um, but it was, I guess, an incubator, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um 
And, you know, it was kind of, um, it was very upsetting. You know, we were all, you know, dreams were smashed. Um, This isn't what we expected. This isn't what we prepared for. Thankfully, we've been, you know, we've literally been blessed. Um, No one uh, ever had any issues, uh, health issues. Our parents, siblings, cousins. So this was just a shock, shock. Um, you know, what's going on? And it was horrifying to see your newborn there in this glass box. And you could just, you know, kind of open the little side thing and touch her hand. Mm. And um, and uh, they had said, um, you need to christen her. And I was just, uh, you know, when I heard that, I thought um, they knew we were Catholic. So Mm -hmm. (laughs) I. I thought, oh, my God, you know, is this how serious is this? And so they just gave me the little hospital paper cup and um, we christened her right there. Wow. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, I'd like for you to talk a little bit about your relationship with your grandmother, which we um, kind of forgot to do earlier on. And I think it has a lot to do with um, your situation with your daughter. We'll be right back. It's really tough for an everyday investor to find honest, personalized investment advice. Some brokers only push the latest hot stocks, and some financial advisors won't even return your phone call unless your account is worth half a million dollars. That's where the Mutual Fund Store comes in. It's where you talk with your local advisor, someone you can meet with face-to-face, not somebody wearing a headset a thousand miles away. And your Mutual Fund Store advisor will work with you to design an investment plan to help you get where you want to be. From day one, our advisors track your funds to make sure they're still right for you. Not everyone in the investment business can say that. The client comes first at the Mutual Fund Store with custom investment plans to fit your goals, not ours. To learn more, visit MutualFundStore.com or call the Mutual Fund Store now in East Norriton and Cherry Hill, 877-239-8330. That's 877-239-8330. The Women's Professional Network of Villanova University sponsors and supports programming for all Villanova women in order to encourage professional growth and development. The purpose is to connect women from all five colleges to educate and ignite change. They are thrilled to have this organization to foster creative collaboration with women across all industries. For more information or to offer ideas and suggestions, please contact them at WPN at Villanova.edu or visit their website at Villanova.edu slash WPN. Go Nova! Are you looking for assistance with your IT demands? Would you like to know that the people you hire have your best interest at heart? InSource is one of the region's most distinguished and fastest-growing technology firms in the Philadelphia area. Their only concern is to deliver your business long-term success to avoid reacting to daily crisis. Recognized as a top employer of IT consultants, they thrive on helping their clients exceed expectations. InSource delivers reliable and effective solutions to the technology needs of both small and large businesses as well as nonprofits, and does so with the goals of your business in mind. With over a decade of recognized 
its success, InSource provides its clients with both IT staffing needs as well as putting highly qualified project teams together. InSource is also a partner of ServiceNow, the fastest growing software company in the country. Contact InSource today at 610-592-0800 or visit their website at InSourceNow.com to find the quality help you need. Welcome back, everyone, to Women to Watch this week. My name is Sue Rocco, and I'm in the studio today with Liz Barker. And Liz has written a wonderful book called, um, sorry, Changed by Chance, Champion by Choice. And um, we're, we're talking with Liz about what brought her to write this book, which is a very, very inspirational story um, from personal circumstance. And um, we were talking about the birth of Liz's daughter, Lauren, and it was clear to Liz uh, almost immediately that there were some issues. And um, something that I just wanted to touch briefly on was uh, your relationship with your grandmother um, had an effect on you later in life and somehow ties to the birth of your daughter. I wonder if you can talk about that a little bit. Yes, I was very close to my grandmother, um, and um, she was just a very warm, um, motherly mother type, uh, would do anything for her children and her grandchildren, which were really, you know, the joys of her life later. And um, I felt particularly close to her. Um, She taught me how to sew. Um, uh, She and my grandfather were Italian immigrants, so they came here with literally nothing and built a life for themselves. And, you know, not an extravagant life, but you know, had their own business and um, um, a dry cleaning and tailor shop. And um, actually, my grandfather ran that at the front of their uh, house. They lived above the store. And actually, my grandmother worked um, in a factory. So it was kind of unusual, I guess, um, you know, for a woman back in that time. But I think that was, you know, she had her children young and um, after her children were mostly grown. But they were hard workers, so their their work ethic um, and their family values, I think, were some great lessons besides her teaching me to do some cooking and some sewing. But um, what's kind of strange is history repeating itself, that she, too, lost a little girl, um, not the same circumstances as Lauren, but um, at around the same age, so... Interesting, you mm-hmm. know. Just and it's it's interesting that um, that you had this special relationship with mm-hmm. her, and that she went through a very similar mm-hmm. um, circumstance. So um, I understand that you know it was several months that uh, Lauren had to remain in the hospital, and that was a very very difficult time. What was going on uh, during that time? Oh, so much. Uh, what had happened was, um, as I said, um, I've been working since I was sixteen years old, paying taxes, paying. Um, you know, later when I was out on my own paying for health insurance. And uh, as I said, the company that I worked for was very good. So they had a variety of plans. And um, Lauren was born in April. So every January was an open enrollment. So I was encouraged by some of my uh, coworkers who had children to switch to an HMO. And they raved about how, you know, there's low co-pays and You don't have to pay for this and that, for routine visits and so forth. So I took their advice and I switched in January before Lauren was born to an HMO. And it was a huge mistake. And uh, I'm being frank, you know, very frank and honest about it. Um, 
in my book, um, the um, the professional writer uh, that I w- collaborated with, uh, we have a cha- chapter about um, the difficulties with insurance, specifically the HMO, and he he dubbed them uh, HMO stands for hand money over. <laughs> <laughs> I think that could be said for a lot of different organizations. Yeah, but it was a battle, quite frankly. It was mm-hmm. a battle with them um, that I shouldn't have had to fight um, to to advocate for quality care for Lauren. There were times, um, so I'm sorry, I'm jumping ahead a little bit. Um, the diagnosis was Lauren did, Lauren did indeed have... Uh, a serious heart defect that required immediate surgery on the day of her birth, which was sad, um, very sad to have. You know, you go through these childbirth classes, all this touchy-feely mother-child bonding, and, mm-hmm. and hear your child's whisked away, and then, you know, undergoes a major, I'm sure, very painful surgery. Um, but her heart defect was a result of her having Down syndrome, and um, we found that out later that that day uh, when she... Um, went down to the pediatric hospital and they ran all of the tests. I'm sure they were much better equipped to really understand what her health um, condition was. Um, And we did find that it was just, you know, one of those flukes. Neither Jim nor I were a carrier. Um, So so that was that. But so getting back to the health insurance. So her needs were many in terms of... um, the heart surgery. Um, she ended up with a tracheostomy in her throat. Uh, she ended up with a gastrostomy tube in her stomach. And um, so she was hospitalized for five months. And it was just a constant battle with um, the insurance to um, to keep her, to, to, to have her receive quality care. And the the most horrendous battle that really wore on me um, and which would have would manifest itself later in my story is that they constantly made me feel guilty. Why are you not taking your child home? And and I thought, I, I don't know how to take, I'm not a nurse. I don't know how to take care of a tracheostomy and gastrostomy. And I thought, even if I, even if I were to quit my job, um, which my uh, job provided the health insurance for the family. Um, Jim was self-employed at the time and did not did not have a plan. Even if I quit, let's say, even if I paid Cobra um, and I stayed home and took care of her all day, who would stay with her all night? Um, when you have a tracheostomy, especially for a baby who doesn't know any better, you know, maybe like an adult to get up and clear so that you don't choke to death. Um, they weren't forthcoming with care. They just wanted her out of the hospital. I guess the bills had, re- you know, mm-hmm. had mounted up and and they just basically didn't care. And it was horrifying and it was a, a terrible guilt trip that they were pressuring me to take her home. I, in my heart, knew that we couldn't handle this. How could we handle it? And I, I feared for my health, uh, you know, everything. I thought I'll be emotionally, physically and financially ruined. Mm-hmm. And it it was frightening. It really was. And I really I really do um, did not have the resources that we have today. The Internet uh, really was non-existent at that point. And um, so um, and as I said, there were no family members um, that went through this type of experience. And but in my gut, I just knew that I would not it would not 
serve her health-wise, and it would not serve Jim nor I health-wise um, to take her home. So it was it was a horrible battle. And like I said, you know, tremendous guilt. I wanted her home. Right, but um, not equipped. Just, you know, why why would they think that you would be equipped to, to handle something like I, that? They, ca- they cared about the money, yeah, which is sad. Mm-hmm. So at at some point she did come home. She did. She did. Um, I was put in touch um, finally with um, a wonderful organization that I talk about in my book, and I support um, with fundraising efforts today. The Ark. Um, there, it's a national organization. Uh, we have lots of local chapters in our Bucks, Montgomery, Chester, Philadelphia County. So it's called the Ark, and they serve individuals with all types of disabilities from birth through adult. Mm-hmm. And a lifesaver at the time was a woman named Patty, who was an advocate. So I didn't find out about the service till um, later on. And Patty went to work on that HMO, and thank God for her. Um, there's there are a lot of instances of angel people in my book, and uh, it was she who said, you know, based on her experience and her knowledge. Again, I I was you know a complete novice at all of this. Who said they need care? They need care at least for the evening. Um, and, and the how did you con- get connected with Pat? If it was the hospital didn't connect you with her, um, was it a friend? support groups? Okay. Uh, the uh, Down Syndrome Interest Group. Okay, good. And the Arc. Um, the ARC would work with Lauren, um, as soon as she got home to, um, you know, they customize a, um, they call it an early intervention plan. So if your child has cystic fibrosis or if they have cerebral palsy, in Lauren's case, Down syndrome, low muscle tone, um, you know, they customize, uh, physical, uh, occupational speech therapies, uh, whatever they might need to help them be the best they can be and to grow into productive um, wage earning, hopefully self-supporting citizens. Right. Which is wonderful. It is wonderful and so needed. It is. It's, I cannot say enough about that organization. Yeah, that's wonderful. Mm-hmm. So um, talk a little bit about, you know, what eventually happened uh, with Lauren. So Lauren came home and with the support of wonderful people at the Down Syndrome Interest Group and the ARC organization, um, we a whole new world was opened up to us. Um, and so again, an interesting life experience. And um, from and and not all was harsh at the hospital. I have to say, a lot of the nurses were really um, the most wonderful people there. And um, not to say all the doctors weren't, but um, uh, some of them just didn't have the time. But so went from some of the the harshness um, to a wonderful, welcoming world. We were also involved. Lauren was also involved at Ken Crest. Ken Crest was a lifesaver. I knew I needed to go back to work again for the health benefits alone. And and just because I thought it was good for, you know, for my mental psyche or whatever you want to call it. Um, so Ken Crest offered um, integrated um, daycare for children with special needs and and those that weren't. And it was a wonderful, wonderful nurturing environment. We met so many dedicated people that just love working with special needs children. And 
I just can't thank them all enough. I'm sure they're overworked and underpaid. Yes. Yes, I'm sure. So Lauren thrived for for three years, um, and we threw ourselves into supporting these organizations through their fundraising and whatever we could do, really, and really made many friends that we're still we're still connected to today. And um, but unfortunately, what hang, hung over our heads was the fact that as Lauren grew, that initial uh, surgery that she had for her heart um, would have to be redone. You know, her body was growing; the surgery needed to be redone, and. Um, so it was initially scheduled before my uh, second child, James, was born. Um, and then I thought, no, I, we can't do this. You know, James was due the week before Christmas. And I thought, I, I can't handle all of this. Let's do it after James is born. And they thought well, two months isn't so bad. Um, so Lauren went into the hospital um, in February, two months after um, James was born. And um, two months before her third birthday, and um, unfortunately, uh, things went very wrong at that hospital that will remain nameless. <laughs> and I've changed the name in the book. But, um, you know, it would have been easier to accept if Lauren had had not made it through surgery. Um, she made it through surgery. Um, what literally killed her um, with an awful um, slow and painful death was a hospital acquired staph infection in her wound. Um, due to their, I think, negligence. Um, and the reason I say that is there was another child um, who had a similar surgery uh, that same week who did not have Down syndrome, who barely pulled through and made it because Lauren had Down syndrome and her system, system was a little bit weaker and a little more compromised. Um, she was not so fortunate and did not make it through. Mm. Sorry. So sorry. That's that's so tough. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we're going to take another break. And mm-hmm. when we come back, we're going to hear more of your story. We'll be right back. The Women's Professional Network of Villanova University sponsors and supports programming for all Villanova women in order to encourage professional growth and development. The purpose is to connect women from all five colleges to educate and ignite change. They are thrilled to have this organization to foster creative collaboration with women across all industries. For more information or to offer ideas and suggestions, please contact them at WPN at Villanova.edu or visit their website at Villanova.edu slash WPN. Go Nova! Are you looking for assistance with your IT demands? Would you like to know that the people you hire have your best interest at heart? InSource is one of the region's most distinguished and fastest-growing technology firms in the Philadelphia area. Their only concern is to deliver your business long-term success to avoid reacting to daily crisis. Recognized as a top employer of IT consultants, they thrive on helping their clients exceed expectations. InSource delivers reliable and effective solutions to the technology needs of both small and large businesses as well as nonprofits and does so with the goals of your business in mind. With over a decade of recognized success, InSource provides its clients with both IT staffing needs as well as putting highly qualified project teams together. InSource is also a partner of ServiceNow, the fastest growing software company in the country. Contact InSource today at 610-592-0800 or visit their website at InSourceNow.com to find the quality help you need. 
It's really tough for an everyday investor to find honest, personalized investment advice. Some brokers only push the latest hot stocks, and some financial advisors won't even return your phone call unless your account is worth half a million dollars. That's where the Mutual Fund Store comes in. It's where you talk with your local advisor, someone you can meet with face-to-face, not somebody wearing a headset a thousand miles away. And your Mutual Fund Store advisor will work with you to design an investment plan to help you get where you want to be. From day one, our advisors track your funds to make sure they're still right for you. Not everyone in the investment business can say that. The client comes first at the Mutual Fund Store with custom investment plans to fit your goals, not ours. To learn more, visit MutualFundStore.com or call the Mutual Fund Store now in East Norriton and Cherry Hill, 877-239-8330. That's 877-239-8330. Welcome back to Women to Watch. I'm in the studio today with Liz Barker, who's written a book called Changed by chance, champion by choice. It's a perfect title, Liz, I have to say, yes. um, <laughs> learning your story. So um, just before the break, we, we spoke about uh, Lauren's passing, and there's another part to this story. So let's talk to the listeners about what happened next in your life. There's quite a bit more, <laughs> which is why I decided to write the book, and hopefully we'll get through all of this. Um, so, um, yes, it was... Um, um, you know, not to get into details, but it was a very difficult um, passing for Lauren. Um, the staph infection was not a, a nice way to, to die. So um, I was really in a state of, of melancholy despite having, um, you know, her brother James um, at her passing in April. He was four months old. I know it was just very sad that entire um, ensuing months. I didn't, I, you know, I just didn't go into, I took disability and decided to go back to work in, in September. And, um, just, you know, I woke up every day crying, thinking about, um, all that had happened and, you know, all that transpired. So, um, I, um, I did become pregnant again, um, at, at, uh, my age 34, right around my birthday that following January. And, um, was, and then was uh, James a year old at that point? Or uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. James was mm-hmm. a year old. Okay. Um, because I had Lauren when I was twenty nine, so mm-hmm. I, I, you know, I didn't want to space out my children too far. Right. I thought it was beneficial to them to have siblings like I like, did, right, you know, right. for fun and mm-hmm. and then um, you know my age and knowing the fact that I you know wanted and needed to work so. Um, so all was well. I was very pleased. And um, I knew that I was carrying another healthy boy. Mm-hmm. And um, around Mother's Day, I um, I started to not feel well. And of all the different special needs children I I encountered at the ARC program, I, I worried that I had a fever. You know, fever can cause problems when you're carrying a baby. So I immediately went to the doctor and... Um, I noticed that I had kind of an itchiness um, in my um, left outer breast. And the doctor said, oh, you've probably got a clogged milk duct. And um, so um, I was due to have the baby ultrasounded. So he said, why don't you get the uh, lump ultrasounded while you're there? And so I went down to um, Thomas Jefferson and, and had that done. And when the technician came out, she had a very serious look on her face and said, 
um, don't ignore this lump. And I thought, what do you mean, you know? And she just looked at me again sternly and said, don't ignore this lump. And I thought, okay, whatever. <laughs> you know, because the doctor didn't really think anything much of it. But um, fast forward some, somewhat, um, there I am five and a half months pregnant. And um, after some other steps, um, the diagnosis is cancer, that I'm five and a half months pregnant and I have breast cancer. And um, because no one really suspected that it was anything serious like this, I had just been to a local um, surgeon that the OBGYN doctor had referred me to. And his immediate um, um, prognosis was, you need to have an abortion, you need to have a mastectomy, and you need to have chemotherapy. Um, if you don't do this, um, you will die. <laughs> I think he was nervous, and I think he was blunt, and I think he was inexperienced. I don't fault him. I th- I think he was perplexed. You know, how do I tell this poor woman? Um, what he didn't know was that I had just lost Lauren the year before. Um, he had no idea of my entire history. And so I, I literally, Jim was with me, thank God. I mean, I literally lost it in his office. I, um, I can't imagine how you handled that emotionally, to be told that. I, I, it was awful. And I, I, I remember blurting out to him, you have no idea what I've been through. You have no idea. I just lost my daughter a year before. And now you want me to terminate this baby who I know is healthy? And, um, and um, I I don't want to get into the details, but it wasn't a simple abortion when you're that far along. It's no. it's quite traumatic, mm-hmm. and I thought I don't I, I I'm not sure I, I'll you know I was concerned that I'd have a mental breakdown having to go through all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, it, very traumatic. Um, so we went home, and thank God, um, um, through the support of our wonderful families, we um, you know we weren't thinking clearly. It said, you must have a second opinion. This just seems so rash and called a family friend who, again, I have all these angels that have come into my life. Um, Dr. Scott Fisher has been a longtime family friend. Scott's a radiation oncologist. Um, he um, made some calls to some associates and um, said, yes, that's that was very rash. I, I'm sure it's because that doctor's, you know, that's not his area of expertise, we need to we need to take a look at this a little further. And Scott really, thank God again for him, um, made arrangements for me to have some testing. And the the, um, the te- all the preliminary tests indicated that the cancer uh, was in early stages. So the plan was to have a mastectomy and kind of assess things from there. And he arranged all of that within ten days. I think I had my mastectomy scheduled. And um, I was scared to death, you know. Again, go back to childbirth classes. They they warn you, oh, don't take aspirin, don't take ibuprofen. Here I am right. going under full sedation and being cut open. Um, and five months pregnant. Yes, yes. or five and a half. Right, mm-hmm. right. So um, the end result was that um, there were two lymph nodes involved, which means the cancer had split, spread slightly, and that would require chemotherapy. Um, and again thinking, my God, toxins that make your hair fall out and I'm pregnant, mm-hmm. what will this do to the baby? At that time, there wasn't much precedent, but Scott called all over the country 
um, different specialists and doctors and said, you know, it's been done. And, you know, ultimately it was my decision, but I had said, um, you know, I want this baby. Whatever it takes, we'll do it. Mm -hmm. And I know that genetically he's healthy and I'm going to trust that, you know, based on the experience you have. So they said he might be slow and he might be small. And um, I thought, I don't care. You know, I've dealt with issues before. Mm -hmm. I'll get through this, I'm sure. Right. Um, But one point to make, too, is so many people say, um, well, you know, what a wonderful mother you are. You saved Brian's life. And honestly, I have to turn it around and say it is he who saved my life because I think that cancer was probably there. I think it manifested from all of the ugliness that I went through, um, you know, with battling for Lauren and and just different issues. There's other things that I cover in the book. The time's too short here, mm-hmm. but all of the hell and the stress that I went through took its toll on my body. I think that cancer was there. I think that the fact that I was under care being pregnant with Brian is what saved me. If I had that lump um, or even the discomfort, I probably would have grinned and bared it and said, I'm not going back to those damn hospitals. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. that's, I'm, I was very disenchanted with a lot of medical professionals at that point. I would have waited, I'm sure, until that thing uh, was much worse, and I was probably in a later stage. Um, but honestly, it is Brian who saved my life, not I who saved him. Yeah, and that's how I view it. Yeah, that's wonderful. And we should and we should say that everything did work out wonderfully, and he's um, perfect, and and you're healthy. And um, you know, I, I'm very curious to know what you know. People go through things in their life that are very very difficult. I want to know why it is you chose to write the book. To share the story. A number of reasons. And also um, to back up a little bit, um, after Lauren passed, um, I've always been very spiritual, not necessarily religious, but spiritual. I had gone to an astrologer um, who I'd gone to before, and I think he was very trustworthy. And he gave me a prophecy. He actually had warned me not to become pregnant after Lauren had died for a while. He cited reproductive problems, but he wouldn't elaborate. And of course, I I didn't listen to him, Um, but he made a prophecy that at some point in my life um, that I would be, um, I would be share, I would be um, uh, kind of out there um, speaking, um, um, telling my story and, and it would do a world of good for me, um, you know, as closure. And it would also help so many other people possibly save lives. And so I always wondered what he meant. And again, he was very cryptic. He wouldn't tell me when and how. So for years and years um, since that time, um, and, and like you said, Brian is fine. I've always watched, waited, wondering, you know, when when will this come to fruition? And I knew I had this story. And the magical thing was, so I, again, just always put it out there to people that I would meet. Two years ago when Lauren would have been 25, I wanted to do something to honor her. Um, and to honor that landmark. And so I threw a fundraiser for the ARC. And so many people were so helpful. And it filled me with euphoria. It really did. And honestly, Susan, it was, again, an, like an epiphany where I thought, why am I not writing this book? I have to do this. And the the light switch went off. And that was it. And I came up with the title on my own. 
And I thought it's very, um, very powerful and tells the story. Changed by chance, champion by choice. I chose not to be beaten down. I chose not to be destroyed. I chose to fight for the life that I wanted back again. Yeah, it's wonderful. It's a wonderful story. And, you know, in the end, it is just so powerful. And I'm I'm so glad that you wrote the book because we are all changed, um, you know, by chances in our life all the time. And mm-hmm. you do have to choose, um, you know, choose happiness and, you know, choose faith and, and choose to move forward. It's really the only choice we have, right? Yes, yeah. it is. Um, we should mention, we only have a few minutes left, which it's always too short, yeah. um, that the book is not available yet, that you are looking for an agent. And yeah, I am anxious. The book, um, I collaborated with a professional writer, Tim Vandehey. Tim penned Vince Papali's book, Invincible. Um, Again, another chance meeting. I've I've just been going through these magical chance meetings these past two years. So the book is fully written. I have a professional book proposal. I have social media. I have my blog, www.changedbychance.com. That's www.changedbychance.com. So I've been building my social media. I need a literary agent. So if anyone listening um, is interested in my nonfiction drama, I'm ready to go. I'm anxious to be published. And I've had tons of people that keep saying, when can I buy your book? Right. (laughs) Including me. Yes. Thank you so much, Liz, for coming in today and sharing that story. It's really wonderful. And uh, I I hope that everyone goes and picks up the book once I know that you're going to find that agent, the right person to represent you. Um, And it's It really holds a wonderful lesson. Thank you. Thank you so much. That's it, everyone, for this week of Women to Watch here on WWDB AM Talk, excuse me, Talk 60. Again, my name is Sue Rocco, and if you have any questions for any of my guests or for me, please feel free to give me a call at 215-313-5561. Have a great week.